Welcome to another edition of Locked On NBA. I hope you're liking the new five-day-a-week format. If you haven't heard, we've moved Locked On NBA to a five-day-a-week format. This is the outlier show. This is when I get to sit down and talk with someone in the league, our scouts, our coaches, our friends. Today, it's Brent Berry, the TNT analyst. Regularly, what we envision this show to be for you is a short, digestible look at the big issues of the NBA. You won't need an hour, just about 30 minutes. Think about it like the New York Times Daily or the Daily 202 or whatever show you might listen to to get your short kind of synopsis of what's going on in the league, and we're making it digestible and bite-sized that you, so you can listen to Locked On NBA every day and then also go grab your favorite team's Locked On podcast. Make those your two podcasting stops that you make sure you do every single day. So here comes the great Brent Barry of TNT. I do want to mention we held this conversation before the comments from Greg Popovich that he doubted that Greg, that uh, Kawhi Leonard would play this year. So that is not uh, we didn't know that at the time. Brent, I think, might have known it actually the way in retrospect of the way you hear him say this. I think he might have known something. So uh, just be aware of that. But again, I hope you're liking the five-day-a-week format. Tomorrow, Adam Matas and Anthony Irwin. If you missed the Eastern Conference breakdown with Wes Goldberg and Dave Ramil, it's terrific. And the Western Conference, John Corrales, Jake Madison conversation was really fun. So it's five days a week now. It's Locked on NBA. Thanks so much for subscribing and leaving a five-star review. Here's the great Brent Berry. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. From his favorite coffee shop in San Antonio, it's Brent Berry. There, there's something appropriate about you at a coffee shop with a pour over in your hand for us to chat. <laughs> you, you know, the, the program used to be, David, that uh, you, know, you know Quinn and Cade. When Quinn used to go out to school after I'd drop them off, I'd come to the coffee shop, but now the kid's old enough to drive, so when they leave school, it's my excuse to leave to go to the coffee shop. So it works out really well to get some work done in the morning and have a good cup of joe. You're you're better than – I just have the home espresso maker, home pour-over. You're at least social and get out and see the world. Yeah, I enjoy uh, – I actually run into a lot of neighbors, uh, conduct a, a few other uh, – things of, of business around town. I'm, I'm involved in a, a few different things and some charitable stuff. So it's a great spot to uh, to have that kind of interaction on a daily basis. And um, occasionally I'll get a free cup of coffee from my buddy Robbie who runs the place. I'm like, look, if I buy 50, can I get one free? And so that's kind of the program I'm on. <laughs> I like it. Um, how was your All-Star weekend? Wow. Uh, my All-Star weekend was very uh, unique, I would say. <laughs> I would say. Um, I had an incredible opportunity this this year to to call All Star Saturday, which sort of came out of the blue. And when work told me that they, they wanted uh, to to have just a, the players do the Saturday broadcast, I thought to myself, this could go one of two ways. I, I think it went the good way, um, but it was it was a lot of work. I was I was really nervous about it, and uh, I really. I can't say I had a ton of fun with it, David, just because I was so neurotic about it. But um, what a nice, what a nice tip of the cap from from Turner to to think that that I could, you know, try to handle a Saturday night uh, for TNT. That was fun. I mean, they've kind of tried to. You're doing these players only, a lot of them, which is really interesting. Um, and then you've yeah. almost had to take the role of like. From Giants fan standpoint, Mike Kruko, Dwayne Kuyper, or even the Ernie Johnson role at times inside of these players only. How has that been? Uh, blasphemous for you to mention those guys in the same breath uh, about what I was trying to do. I, I yeah, um, 
it's it's weird just because I, I don't have experience doing that stuff. Um, I certainly have experience watching basketball games. I've done that for a long time. Um, so learning a lot of the nuances about how and uh, what you need to do in order to pull off the production of a television broadcast, um, which I, I'm sure I'd be fascinated on the radio side as well um, with, with what you do. But on the television side, there's so many moving parts. And I think I'm just learning every week that I have a chance to go out and do players only. And as this month goes, David, I have opportunity to do like a players only game on a Tuesday. And then on a Thursday, I'll have to do a TNT game. And so I'll slide over and, and be next to, you know, whether it be Marv Albert or, or Brian Anderson or, or Kevin Harlan as we, as we move through the March schedule. So man, I'm just, it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a little bit of work because I want to. Um, and I, I hope that I'm not getting in the way of the game. I, the, uh, the storylines of All-Star Weekend are always kind of funky because um, the game's so weird. So obviously one of the storylines was Donovan Mitchell winning the slam dunk contest and kind of his just arrival out of nowhere on the scene and now in a head-to-head march with Ben Simmons for Rookie of the Year. What were your impressions of him? What have been your impressions of him this season? Well, um, if this this 11-game run that you've been so fortunate to be calling before the All-Star break um, has not gotten people out of their seats or garnered some attention for Donovan Mitchell. I'm, I'm curious as to what would get people going because it's been pretty fantastic. Um, and you and I spoke, David. I, I had called you and you were on the mountain. I think I can say that you had vacation yep. time, and uh, you're you're just telling me a little bit about your experiences with with Donovan, not as the player and the growth of him as a player that has become so rapid uh, and and accelerated, but just the fact that what he represents for the Utah Jazz going forward for the rest of this season, into the summer, uh, into next year, given the departure of Gordon Hayward and where the Jazz were supposed to be and how this was going to be a, a long time to rebuild and get things back together. I mean, the guy is hes sort of manna from heaven at this point, and uh, I think it's pretty awesome that you guys have somebody like that in Utah uh, given his talent and, and also his character. There's no question that, I mean, the, the phrase, thank God for Donovan, has been uttered a million times. And, and, then there, I mean, and then there's something to him. I mean, that's kind of what I was wondering. You haven't interacted with him as much. There, whether it's just the – I've said my two favorite things about him is the respect he has for his mom and the love he has for his sister. Like, there's just this truthfulness to him. Obviously, if he couldn't shoot and he couldn't drive and he couldn't finish, you know, honestly, nobody would care about those two things other than they'd be valuable for him in life. Uh, but there does seem to be a sincerity to who he is and just kind of every little, you know, TNT suddenly had that story about him playing drums. There just seems to be something about this kid. Well, I, I think for you to mention those qualities first, aside from the basketball, speaks volumes to, to what you have in Utah. And I brought up the point to you. I think it's interesting because the Utah Jazz have always been thought of as Stockton and Malone uh, or Coach Sloan. There's always been a connection to the the, the team itself uh, and not so much an individual star power, which a lot of franchises sell along the way, that when a team comes to town, it's this guy and the rest of his team. Uh, it's the first time that really Utah has that kind of, you know, it guy. And it's going to be really fascinating move, moving forward for uh, for Quinn, and I think he's done, by the way, uh, he's got to be considered as one of the coaches of the year, given the job he's done. 
uh, with Rudy's injury and the team being as competitive as they have been. But just, just moving forward, how exciting that is for the Utah Jazz fan base. When you watch, you mentioned Quinn Snyder. When you watch, who are the coaches that jump out to you? Um, Quinn is fascinating to me. Uh, of course, Brad Stevens gets a lot of attention, and, and most of that is because Brad always seems to get the best out of the players when they're in Boston and then when they move out of Boston because they're accentuated in the system. They don't seem to flourish as much, and I don't you know, make that point just because Jay Crowder and and uh, Isaiah Thomas didn't work out in in their respective teams, uh, well, in Cleveland, let's say, because I think Quinn's going to find a way to make Jay Crowder a, a huge part of what they do in the second half of the season. Uh, Eric Spolstra continues to do things that uh, don't get recognized as he has a scrappy team that doesn't really have a definitive player or at least a, a way that they play. He kind of gets these, these uh, you know, sort of misfit toys put together and then starts to get them to understand how to commit to the defensive end. Um, you know, I was Steven Popper in a, another, a, another realm altogether. I think it's going to be interesting after this year is over, uh, David, to see if there will be some, some other coaching changes around the league. Uh, we never hope for those sort of things, but directions of other teams, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what they do. The last guy I'll mention because I had a chance to, speaking with him over All-Star Weekend, is is Mike D'Antoni and just how much, and I'm not sure when this will happen, David, just how much of what Mike D'Antoni started in 2003, 2004, has made the league what it is today. I mean, he truly is the architect behind how it is that teams consider how to play offensive basketball in the NBA. I have a theory on D'Antoni. It's a little bit of my same theory on Thibodeau. I talked to Mike about it this year, and he refuted it, obviously. But And I think he's refuting it with his action. But my thought was that he changed the game as this incredible innovator and with that seven seconds or less team. And then the rest of the league started doing what he was doing. So what he did was not unique anymore. It's my same feeling a little bit on Thibodeau where he started icing everything in Boston. Right. And, and now everyone right. does that. So there's nothing unique to that because everyone it was so great that everyone followed it. Now, I asked Antonio about it, and his comment was, I just didn't have players who would do it. I now actually have players that are doing it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe there's something to is, – is D'Antoni still doing something differently all these years later than everybody else is doing? I, I don't think so. Uh, the – the tools in his shed are a little bit more capable of some of the things that he'd like to do. I mean, even kind of exacerbating the system a little bit. But two things I would make a point on with D'Antoni. First of all, when I talk to Mike D'Antoni, I could put him in the movie Tombstone and be okay with him <laughs> as Doc Holliday. I think that would work. Um, and number number two, David, just in terms of um, uh, of the way that they play, I, I want to make this, this point just as a player. What it is that Mike D'Antoni has done to the offensive side of the basketball has forced teams not only to think about what they want to do offensively, it has uh, put people and teams in terms of their personnel in a massive bind as to what it is they need to do defensively. And what I mean by that is because you have to guard all the way out to 24 feet, sometimes with the Rockets 28 feet, the idea of having the equipment 
in terms of your defensive personnel is uh, lagging. There are a lot of teams that are so far behind with what they can do defensively that they don't have the personnel to catch up. This is why the NBA offenses are three and four years ahead of what teams can do defensively. And this is why the league is having teams search out the best long switchable defensive players that they can in order to guard what it is that offenses can now do to you. And that's kind of the, kind of the master stroke of it all is that the defenses are catching up or trying their best to catch up with what it is. The offenses on a nightly basis are offering up. It's an interesting, like, I don't know what you're supposed to do defending them when they put Harden and Capella in a high pick and roll at the top. If you bring a third guy in, you're giving up an open three to a good three-point shooter. And if you don't bring a third guy in, what are you doing? Switching a center on to Harden, and then you got a small on Capella for the lob? Or are you just you know, just trying to – I mean, really, at that point, now you got to drop the big and try to guard both Harden driving and done, Capella's lob, and there might only be one big in the league that can do that. Yes, this is where the gray hair theory comes in for all the other coaches. Have you done, David, looking into how it is that you know before the season everybody's saying, "Oh, Harden, Chris Ball is never going to work," which I was just uh, just laughable to to think about that. But do you know some of the numbers with regards to Chris Paul and James on the floor at the same time? Because I think that that in the second half of the season is really going to be something worth looking at. The, the Houston Rockets have. If you want to go into the numbers, they have the best offense of all time right now. They have surpassed what it is that the Warriors have represented over the past couple of years. That's not an exaggeration. That, that's fact. But the second half of the year in the last 20 games or so, for the Houston Rockets to have as many, and I'm not wishing this on them, but they need to have as many close games as possible. They need to find out and assimilate Joe Johnson into the lineup. They need to find out when Chris Paul and James Harden are on the floor, which of the sets and where on the floor they're going to be most effective. They need to have as many repetitions against an opponent that is uh, not in practice jerseys and guys that they know, but against NBA opponents as they get ready for the playoffs. Because when we get into the grind of playing a series, my only uh, reserve about the Houston Rockets is about can they get to – quality sets that they have played in in those kind of competitive uh, situations that that's a team that needs to understand what it can do and that's the that's kind of the Chris Paul effect of putting him on your rosters come playoff time instead of James having to make every decision and wearing him down and you know if he gets a little mental and has a couple of bad plays he might be out of the game mentally a little bit well Chris should be able to take over at those moments so that's critical for the Houston Rockets as, as they play the last 20 or so games. The thing that concerns me with them was my, is my only takeaway I had from last year's offseason was that every team who came at you from the same spot on the floor every single time, so the Clippers with Chris Paul, mm-hmm. the Rockets with James Harden, the Thunder with Russell Westbrook, you could see offenses grind down as playoff series went on. When the other yeah. team just gets used to, this is the sixth, by game six, this is the fo- 600th time you've brought the ball up the floor in the same spot. <laughs> like, here's one thing I'll point out, David. One of the 
I, I think one of the nuances of, to, to great offense in the NBA or college or, or high school to me is you have to get behind the eyes of the defense. And the more times that you can get your best players behind the eyes of a defensive unit, the better off you're going to be. So in, in the case in point that you're making with regards to Harden or Chris Paul or Russell at the top of the key, anytime a guy is up there with the basketball, you have 10 eyes on you. You have five guys defensively that can play the elbows and boxes and are ready for whatever it is that's going to be happening in front of them. The idea of putting your best player behind the eyes of the defense, where he's shooting up the middle of the floor, going into a rub set at the top of the key, firing out as an option to either corner and catching the ball on the wing and getting immediate pick and roll. The reaction time of the defense and the time it takes the defense to locate said superstar player can impact how it is that the defensive setup is. And so I really like offenses that promote the best player as many times as you can, but be getting behind the eyes of the defense in order to try to take advantage of, of a half-court setup. That's really interesting. Brent Barry of TNT with us here on Locked On NBA. Really interesting uh, thought. Remember, Locked On NBA is now a five-day-a-week podcast. Uh, moving. By the way, can I? I'm gonna interrupt you and tell yes. you this. I want to give a, a lot of credit and just kudos to what you're doing with the Lockdown Network. When I've been doing the players only, David, I travel on the airplane because trains. I can't find a train, but I put <laughs> on my headphones and I listen to the Lockdown for any team that I'm about to cover. I usually go back four or five episodes. I download them. I throw in my headphones. Some of the guys that are on the Locked On Network and covering the teams are doing an incredible job. Now, there are a couple other guys that need to pick it up a little bit. <laughs> but I'm not going to name names. But some of the teams are doing such great work. I and mean, it's invaluable for me as an analyst to do that research and to hear those guys talk about their team and, and you know, not be killing their team all the time or not be, you know, not talk about their teams the best in the world, but being fair and unbiased and giving a painting a nice picture. So I really do appreciate what you're doing. And I hope the fans out there are getting a good listen because uh, those guys are doing good work. It's nice. You appreciate that, Brent. Uh, staying rockets a little bit. You think the Warriors can just flip the switch? Like, is there any reason to be concerned? I know I, it's like the cliche, but it was, I, I actually was trying to do some analysis. I'll, I'll get you where I'm coming from here. I was trying to do some analysis during all-star break of, Analyzing the Warriors, trying and analyzing the Rockets, and analyzing some of the teams, pretending I didn't know who they were, just taking mm-hmm. them on face value, right? Because whenever you analyze the Warriors, you just stop and go, "Okay, they have Durant, Curry, Draymond." But like, I tried to like really analyze them this, and and it was an interesting exercise because there, I could start talking myself into the fact that there's some things that aren't quite right, like you know, for example. Sure. One of their main guys is shooting twenty two percent from three, and when they have Andre in Andre Iguodala, and when they have Iguodala and Draymond on the floor together, they now have two guys shooting below thirty percent from three. Right, so collapsible defenses and not closing out to guys to give up driving lanes. You can stay on Steph or Clay or one of the two that's on the floor and pinch back against their big and challenge them to beat you. Yeah. Sure. I- so my analysis of them, they're still really what my analysis came out to is that Steph and Clay 
excuse me, Steph and Durant are having the most superhuman seasons on the planet. And for that reason alone, they are probably fine. I mean, both those guys are literally on the verge of going 50, 40, 90, which you know. Um, the, but is there something in that, David, real quick? If, if, if Steph and, and KD are playing that well, let's say there's a, a slight regression for, for those two guys and that there has to be all of a sudden uh, an, an implied pressure on the other guys to perform a little bit better offensively. I think that's where it is where you're making the point with Iguodala and Draymond Green that if those guys aren't as sharp, then there, there is vulnerability with the Warriors in that way. I mean, that, that could happen. You know, if all of a sudden KD does not have a good series or is matched up against somebody that uh, is getting into him or, or Steph has uh, some issues with a, a guard that's getting into him in a series, that the other guys better get sharp and they better be sharp at the right time. That absolutely could happen. Their defensive ratings by the quarter is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. They're 29th in the league in defense in the first quarter. <laughs> yep. And then How about that third quarter, though, uh, David? Right. Can we get to the third yeah, quarter? Right. I mean, so it, it does look when you analyze them that they're just trying to get through every night. I asked Steve Kerr the other day. I said, like, I do my analysis of you, and it sure seems like you're only playing defense when you have to. And he said, yes, and I'm fine with that. Um, yeah, their third quarters, they're outscoring people by 21 points per 100 possessions. And so, should we just look at the third quarter and say that's who they are, and they're the, or is there any, or is there any other thing that you look at that you say, I mean, they're forty-four and fourteen, right? Like, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, it, it, it's when you say it, it doesn't really uh, mean too much to say the Warriors have been to three finals. It kind of rolls off the tip of your tongue, but if you stop and just say it a second time and then realize what the calendar effect of the statement you just made is the type of wear and tear on the body, the type of mental uh, exhaustion and the type of mental exercise it is to play at that level throughout the course of a regular season and into the playoffs. I mean, three straight years of that, and then the fourth year, you know, being what they are this year, it really is. It really is a grind, and it doesn't. It, it doesn't seem as enjoyable as what you might think it is to go into a game every night and know, hey, we're either going to win or we're we're going to lose. It's not that we're going to win and the other team's going to beat us. And that's how good the Warriors have been for four years. Is that we are going to beat ourselves tonight or we're going to win the game? All right, so- and. Uh, those effects are, are, are evident this year with them. So then give me the – I guess then this is the question. The playoffs start and all that fatigue we've been talking about just goes away? I, I think there's a ramp up for them in the last uh, seven or eight games. And I've done research with our guy at NBA TV, Justin Kimbrell, about this. Everybody talks about you want to go into the playoffs hot and you want to be playing – you know, you just want to go in healthy. Right. I, we've done a bunch of research on these teams and – you know, most some of these teams are like two games over 500 that go and win the championship, or some of these teams are, you know, they won eight of a eight of 16 and they end up in the Eastern Conference Finals. It, it doesn't matter all that much. You and I both know that once it once it's playoff time, that the matchups matter most, and then the health of your team matters second. And so for the Warriors, 
Yeah, that that's what it's about for them. I mean, they're going to get into that mode. Uh, Steve's going to challenge them in the last few games to try to reach peak level on defensive stuff, and they'll be ready to go. First, first twenty games are always a better indicator than the last twenty games. At one thousand percent. And on that note, worth noting, the Warriors' differential in their first twenty games of the year was plus thirteen, which is like historically great. Like, I'm not sure anybody's ever been plus 13. So they, they were plus 13 for their first 20 games, and then they got and then they turned off. And that's the one where you still say they're totally dominant. Who, if you're picking... And, and, and last, last, a quick yeah. point about that is, remember what Steve was saying is that when they started to make that tail off time, what was happening is they had come down off of having to go overseas to, you know, to do that trip in the preseason. Um, you know, guys were euphoric about coming back and getting their rings and being back on the court, and then they realize, oh, shit, we've got 60 games to go. <laughs> right, right. Right, I mean, did we bleep that out? No, that's, I don't care. That's fine. Okay, so the coffee was getting to me. That's good. You know, the Rockets, by the way, just worth noting on the Rockets, they their first 20 games were pretty good, too. What's interesting about the Rockets' first 20 games is they defended. They had a defensive rating of 101.8 in their first 20 games. See, I told you I got bored during the break and looked at these things. Was Chris Paul part of the first 20? No. No. Not a lot. Not a large part of them. Their defense has not been as good without, with Chris Paul, which is an interesting, um, item Mm. as he ages. Eastern Conference favorite in your mind. Uh, you know, I got to see the Cavs play the OKC team, their last game before the break. And what it is that they did to transform their team, I think, is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it, it's, writing, it's writing a personnel wrong that, that Kobe Altman uh, tried to approach in the offseason, uh, having been shoved into the GM position so soon. Uh, but what they did makes them pretty, pretty dynamic. And when Kev Love gets back into that lineup, they are going to be pretty tough. I don't think the Boston Celtics uh, were ever as good as the 16-2 and two run they went on. I think it was awesome. Uh, it was a great story with Kyrie playing well and the young guys stepping up the way that they did. But they have tailed off quite a bit here since they've come back from London. Uh, I'm interested in the Raptors. You know, will, will the young guys step up for Dwayne Casey? They've tilted the offense a little bit. Uh, defensively, they've been good, but can they step up in those moments? I, I still lean on the Cavs. I mean, how can you not lean on, on what LeBron James can do against you in the playoffs? Yeah, I love that Raptors Cavs. team. I, I, was, yeah. I was very, very disappointed that the Raptors didn't make a move at the deadline. Uh, I, f- I feel like that team has a chance to make the finals. I don't think it has a chance to beat the Warriors. And I just thought they needed another veteran off that bench. I would have sacrificed one of the young guys for a veteran off the bench. Can they still do something like that? I mean, is there time? Is, is that over? Is that all, the window closed? Pick somebody up? I mean, I don't know who the buyout person is at this point. Um, yeah. I thought they might swing for the... I, I did hear the murmurs of DeAndre Jordan going there, and I thought, hmm, that could be really fascinating. That if, you know, if it was a, a Valanchunas package and they moved off of, of Valanchunas, what that might do to them. But, you know, then you start disrupting the chemistry and the flow of, of the team. But it would have been interesting to have that much athleticism and, uh, you know, rebounding potential with DeAndre in there, considering that Valanchunas, you know, is playing barely any touches in a game anyway, seven, seven to nine touches a game anyway. You dig into them a little bit, and at least what I think I saw 
was that their bench units are the are are, are winning games for them. And yep. and I'm just yeah. concerned that those bench units don't give them that edge in the playoffs. I love that, David, because the bench units will not play the amount of minutes that they have established the rhythm with all year long. The extension of the minutes will happen with Lowry and DeRozan, and the key guys will play minutes. So all of a sudden, the combinations, and this is the danger of having sort of like a two-unit approach during the regular season, is that when you disrupt that rhythm come playoff time and you only select one or two bench guys to go in and play seven or eight-minute stints instead of the 14 or 15-minute stints with three other guys that they're very familiar with, the impact of how you play, where your shots come from, becomes incredibly different. And so, yeah, I'm with you on that. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road with the, the Raptors is the fact that can these bench units actually be on the floor together in the same way that they got production during the regular season? Begin to wrap up with TNT's Brent Berry. Nice enough to take the time with us. Catch him on Thursdays on the national games, the players only games. He's done, uh, doing great work, uh, across the board. Uh, all right. Other, we've kind of hit the big ones. The rock, the, the, are there other storylines, teams, Kawhi yeah. Leonard, other things that jump out to you in the next 25, 30 games that, that you really kind of keep an eye on and think have long lasting impact in the league or at least impact for the rest of the year? Uh, the, just the one is, the, is you know, being here in the hometown. Uh, San Antonio laying in the weeds here, and I, I really don't have uh, any inside information. I don't know anything with, that's going on as far as Kawhi Leonard's return and eventually Rudy Gay's return to the lineup, but I thought it was uh, curious the first half of the season with what happened uh, in Kawhi just playing nine games and missing 50. Uh, but if he's not back in the first eight games of the second half of the year, it becomes curious. And I'm just wondering if, if at any point he, he's going to play this year. Because w- without him, there's, the Spurs just cannot muster offense. They, they can play great defense. Uh, they can stay in the game with their, their bench unit and do all those things. But back to your point about Toronto, um, San Antonio has a more fragile bench this year uh, because a lot of these guys are young players that they'd be leaning on. Even though they move Parker to the bench and Gasol to the bench, I, I can see what Pop is doing. He's trying to get those young guys the type of confidence where um, you know they, they can play the opening minutes of games, but come playoff time, that won't be a recipe for them to have success. But no Kawhi Leonard, there's just not really a chance for them to, to mount up an offensive attack against any of the opponents really in the top four right now, Golden State, Houston, OKC, Minnesota. I just don't think they can play enough offense. The Kawhi thing that was strange to me was even the nine games he played, he barely played. Yeah, weird. I mean, just just, just strange overall, uh, mostly because of, you know, some of the things that were said about the rehabilitation process and about Kawhi going outside of the Spurs doctors and, and family to get himself healthy um, and, and reports uh, about being disgruntled and, and upset with how things were handled, which, you know, there, there's been, there's been no, <laughs> no leaking in the San Antonio Dyke for, for 25 years. Um, 
so that that made it really interesting. No, there's no question that as and and what they've done this year to have the record they have is incredible. But the last 12 months of Spurs land is very different than the 12 months we've seen with the Lamarcus story, with the Kawhi story. Like yeah. it's just different. I'm not yeah. sure what it means yet, and you get very nervous to ever put anything on that group because they overcome all of it, but it definitely feels different. Something's different in San Antonio than has been. Um, I don't, I actually really try to ever stay away from a lot of analysis of what happens from uh, February 1st to February 21st, because I, in this this case, because of the fact that it is right up to the All-Star break and teams are just kind of rolling into the All-Star break. But the Philadelphia 76ers have the number one defense in the NBA since January 1st, the fourth best net rating. When Embiid plays their plus 11, like, are they really good? They are, um, you know, I did a Philly game a couple weeks ago and got a chance to catch up with Brett Brown, who was an assistant coach uh, from the four years that I was here in San Antonio, which you know, David, as well as I do, is one of the most positive uh, effervescent people in the NBA. Uh, the guy is incredible. And what he talked about with regards to them is that they just get too sped up. You know, they're playing at a good pace, um, and they just get themselves riled up so much that turning the ball over costs them dearly. And that is a part of what it is that they do that I, it's, it's obviously fixable. It's controllable. But with their experience, I don't think it's going to go away come playoff time. And my question about what they do uh, defensively, I know they've had a great run here, is come playoff time systematically, can they get their unit in its entirety with the bench guys that come in uh, and and play? uh, Can they be that solid throughout the course of a a 48-minute game? That's going to be really interesting with how much they lean on these young guys. Uh, and Bede and Simmons and those guys being in the playoffs the first time, you know, how much can they carry out a very, very intricate game plan for what you need to do uh, defensively? You just... But they've been fun. I mean, they've been super fun to watch. And uh, obviously the league, much like the Portland teams when they had Odin, Brandon Roy, and you thought, oh, boy, that Portland team is going to be in the finals for four or five years. Uh, I remember that in the early part of the 2000s, you thought that that was going to be the team. Philly seems to have that same kind of mojo with them. It does, and it feels like they've clicked in a little bit. Um, it's interesting. You, Brent Brown leads to something there. There is still this myth about pace. There is still no correlation between pace and good offense. The Warriors no. are really good no. offensively and play fast. But there's and, – and the fact of the matter is the Rockets have slowed way down. Since January 1st, the Rockets are like 20th in the league in pace. The Timberwolves are one of the great offensive teams. They're about 23rd. Indiana has been amazing offensively under Nate McMillan, and he's grinded it to the halt that he's comfortable with. Um, it's interesting that there, despite all the pace, 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 there is absolutely no correlation there. The other idea, David, that people get all hung up on is the idea of passes per game and that the, the best passing teams always are the best offensive teams or produce the most high-quality shots, which is completely mythical as well. A lot of guys will talk to me about, hey, Brent, I saw the passing numbers of this team. You know, They throw the you know, 27th most fewest passes. I shouldn't say most fewest. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but the 27th fewest passes in the league. And I'm like, yeah? So who's taking the shots? 
like, is it, is Kevin Durant taking the shot and Steph? Okay, good. So they don't have to pass the ball as much. I mean, it's, uh, you, you have to watch, you know, some of these numbers are, are a little bit tricky. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, ball movement and pace are certainly ones. And I wish that we would do a better job of explaining that, David, to be quite honest with you, like talking about assist percentage, talking about rebound percentage. Yeah. Is the team going to have 15 more rebounds because their opponent missed right. 30 shots in the first half? Yes. But let's talk about the percentage of rebounds that they're tracking down because that's a, a lot more accurate stat and paints a little bit better picture of the game. The, if you ask the head coach of the Utah Jazz, he would tell you that the high level of passes on offense leads to better defense. Well, I, I love that too. So his, the defense let, is let, to, let, be, to have predictive. Let, let me jump out. Wait, shots, wait let, let me jump out yeah. here for a second and explain that to people. He believes that if everybody touches the ball offensively, they'll play defense on the other end. Where if you run up the floor while somebody's shooting and not touching the ball, they're not playing defense on the other end. Yeah, think about. Well, just go to men's league and then think about the way that uh, you feel at open gym when you're playing right. with a chucker. Right. But the idea is this too: if I know predictively, if I know that within the set that on the fourth or fifth pass that this option is going to open up and I can see it from the weak side. Let's say I'm on the weak side and I see a pin down on the opposite side, left side of the floor, and all of a sudden J.J. Reddick's flying off. The guy's cheating over the screen. I see J.J. flatten off. I know he's going to get a shot in the corner. My first step is automatically I'm already back. Probably by the time he's going to be around the rim, I'm already at half court. So the more passes, the more it becomes a predictive offensive possession for you to start your natural flow stepping back uh, defensively and starting to, to build your possession on defense. Yep. It's very interesting. All right. Final thing for you. Um, yes. I think one of the, one of the real storylines in the league right now that is probably not talked about as enough is the Victor Oladipo's of the world, the Joe Ingles, who I see every night, the incredible uh, yeah. improvement of players while in the league, I think this is somewhat new. I feel like AC Green came in the league and was just AC Green, right? And I, that there's something going on in this league where guys are improving while in the league at a higher rate than I've ever seen before. Let, let me ask you this, David. My theory on it, it's, it's amazing you brought this up. I've had this discussion at the studio with, uh, with a few of our guys. I think that the way that the game is played, um, in terms of it being a, a lot more skill-based and in terms of it being a lot more open and avoiding the dreaded uh, post-up uh, possession after possession after possession, is allowing these guys who are in positions to have the ball as much as they are to figure out ways that they can use what it is that they do best to take advantage of said defense or another team. Like think about jingles and what he gets to do within the offense for Quinn Snyder on a nightly basis. He gets to have great quality possessions at the three point line with how well he shoots the ball guys closing out and with his skill set to pass the ball, be able to spot open shooters and make plays. Joe Ingles may be back in 1997, would probably come in and play like Brian Russell and play defense and watch Carl Malone on the post and stay on the weak side and hope that there's a double team and, you know, occasionally get a shot in the corner, but most of the time go back and play defense and swoop under the basket like Hornacek 
and uh, set up the, the 1-4-X offense. I think there's something about the way that the game is played that Oladipo, Joe Ingles, like you mentioned, uh, you know, that, that they get the chances to actually explore their talents uh, given the minutes and the opportunities that they have on the floor. The game allows for that. Great thoughts, Brent. Always appreciate it. You do great work. Enjoy it. Thanks for your kind words about the Lockdown Podcast Network. Uh, it's probably all a ploy to get me to buy you a ski ticket when you come out here or at least make you a cup of coffee. Well, save your ACLs. No injuries on the hey, mountain, David. Hey, hey, Always hey, 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 that's like, dude, when I covered you and you'd made like 15 of your last 18 threes, I didn't bring it up. Like, why do you got to mention that? Like, you're not supposed to ever that, talk about that. Is that the ski jinx? Yes, uh, like, you jinx? never talk right, about that. Just, here's the thing. Just edit that out. Nobody will ever hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the time, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. Brent does fabulous work. Thank you very much for him taking the time today. And Adam Otis, Anthony Irwin tomorrow. It's the Locked on NBA daily show for you. Now, this week we had some long ones, but starting next week, you'll see them be bite-sized and available for you so you can get them each and every day here on the Locked on Podcast Network.